uh, church service. Now I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to say, it's a new year. I want you to turn to your other neighbor and say, it's a new you. And if you don't have a neighbor, then answer the question yourself. That's why we need more folks, right? So we have more neighbors. Well, today I want to introduce a brand new sermon series that uh, we'll be walking through the next four weeks. Uh, the sermon series is entitled Big Questions. Big Questions. And uh, as a Sunday school teacher, as a pastor, as a Christian, some of these questions are the questions that I have heard over and over and over again throughout my life walking with Jesus. And so I felt like as we begin this new year, we want to dive in to these four questions. We want to tackle them one by one. And of course, one of the most popular ones is this morning. So if you're here this morning, you could say, wow, I'm glad I'm here because it, we're going to see what the Bible has to say. The Bible gives very clear, very succinct answers to this question. Why does God allow evil and suffering? Why is there evil and suffering in our world today? Why is there so much pain, sickness, and death? Why is there so much violence on the streets? Why is there so much crime? So many people going and doing mass shootings, taking other people's lives, taking other people's belongings. Why is there so much discord and strife in our world? Why are our schools unsafe? Why is it that we experience natural disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes and volcanoes and earthquakes and lightning and droughts and famines? Why is it that we struggle to get along with one another? These are very hard questions to answer. And as if God is provident, which he is, last Monday night, Susan and I were watching Monday night football. And those who were watching Monday night football last week, you've probably heard about it since then. Because a 24-year-old safety for the Buffalo Bills makes a tackle, stands up, and then collapses on the field. Goes unconscious. Stops breathing. The trainers and the medical staff rush onto the field. The prayers immediately drop down on a knee and start praying. You can visibly see tears in the eyes of the players because they know this type of injury is not something they've seen before. A 24-year-old healthy man at the peak of his health drops almost dead on the field. They had to revive him using CPR. They rushed him off to the hospital, put him in ICU, declared him as critically, critically hurt, not sure if he's going to live. When you witness that, you go, why? Why did this happen? It is the key to the answer to our question this morning. Why does God allow evil and suffering? You know, the implication is the problem of evil. It's both an intellectual question and an emotional one. Why does God allow evil in this world? 
Many atheists or agnostics or people who do not believe in God would ask the question, well, if your God, Mr. Christian, is all-powerful, if your God is all-good, then why does he allow pain and suffering? Why does he allow evil in this world? The implication is perhaps God is not all-powerful. Perhaps God is not all-good. Perhaps God is not loving. Perhaps God cannot do something about it. The Bible tells us just the opposite and gives reasons, very clear reasons, why he allows it. The implication also is that some would say, well, then God ordained it. God created evil for his own glory. I would argue that the scripture teaches that God did not create evil, but he allows it for the purposes that we cannot understand this side of heaven. But he gives us the answers in the word of God. So as we think about it, we have to ask ourselves, what is evil? What is evil? And why does God allow it? And then what is suffering? And why does God allow that? So this morning we want to ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering? Everybody turn with me in Romans, the book of Romans in your Bible, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we're going to begin in verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. Webster's Dictionary defines evil as profound immorality and wickedness. We all know that moral evil exists. Crime and violence, abuse, assault, theft and murder. And it proves that there is a God because we understand that there is a sense that we all have of right and wrong. We're endowed with a conscience. We're endowed with what C.S. Lewis calls a moral law, a natural law within all of us. Why? Because we're all created in the image of God. God has given us his image. It's his gift to every single creature, every single human being. Animals don't have it, plants don't have it, trees don't have it, but humans do. We all have a conscience. We all have what we call the image of God. We know innately right from Rome. And so Paul here, in addressing the church in Rome, deals with this issue of evil and why it exists. I'll begin reading and I'll give us really the cause of evil, the condition of evil, and then the consequences of evil as revealed in this passage. So I'm going to walk through. You don't have to stand for the reading of scripture because I'm going to read as we go. But the first here is verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. Notice what it does not say. It doesn't say that the wrath of God is being revealed against all humans. It's being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of men. Do you all see that? God is righteously angry wrathful against the sinful choices of humans. And then it goes on to say, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So evil really is suppressing truth. That's what evil is. When you suppress the truth, you are, in fact, doing evil. It's interesting because to suppress the truth means you must innately know the truth. 
And it goes on because it says here in verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Do you realize that God has made it clear to humankind who he is? You just look outside. You look up at the stars in the sky. You look at the heavens. You look at the planets and how they're all balanced perfectly. You look at the mountains, the grandeur of mountains in our world, waterfalls, the ocean, the tides, the moon. You look at it all. You look at the birth of a newborn baby. You look at the human body. You look at the the hand and how it moves, how it connects somehow to your brain. Doctors will tell you they still don't know everything there is to know about the human brain. God created it. God's an intelligent designer. God has put this world in perfect balance, perfect order for us to be able to sustain life. God has made that perfectly uh, understandable by all of us. It's plain to all of us. We just need to look at creation and we can see that there is a God. But then secondly, he revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. John chapter 1 says, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. So over the next three weeks, after after this sermon, in the next three weeks, my job as a pastor is to lay out in very specific detail what the Word teaches and answers about these three questions beyond this one. And I will do so with grace and truth. Jesus is full of of grace and truth. In fact, the fullness of the deity is made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. But then thirdly, God gave us his holy word, written by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit moved men, moved them, carried them to write down the very words of God. This is God's love letter to mankind. This is Who he is, he has revealed himself perfectly in the pages of Scripture. All 66 books are inspired by God. God breathed. And so therefore, we see God through his creation. We see God in the person of Jesus. We see God in the pages of Scripture. Suppression of truth is what humans who are evil do. They suppress the truth. It's otherwise known as pride. It's otherwise known as pride. You realize that God said to Satan in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 15, you were blameless in your ways. God created Satan. He created him good. He created him beautiful. He created him to worship him. And in Ezekiel 28, 15, he says, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. And then Satan turned around and tempted Eve. 
What did he do? He went to Eve and he said, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So the cause of evil is the suppression of the truth, suppression of the truth or pride. The second is the condition of evil. Look at 21, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. The condition of evil is really robbing God of his glory. When you rob God of his glory, then that is sin. How many of us want to say, look at me, look at me, look at me. I've done this. I've gone there. I've been to this place. All of this is taking our own glory. Look at what I can do. The bottom line is is that God gave you the ability to do everything you do. Do you realize that there are involuntary impulses in your human body that allow you to live right now? Can you imagine if any of us had to think to breathe? If we had to consciously move to breathe? If we had to consciously move to make sure our heart kept pumping? But God gives us that gift. Your body is not your own. Your body is a a creation of the Lord. Give your body to the glory of God. Give your mouth to the glory of God. Give your ears to the glory of God. Give your mind that he has given you the ability to create, to think, to be critical thinking. God wants you to use that for his glory. But no, these people, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking, then what, became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and animals, birds and animals and reptiles. Can you imagine how small we must be that we would set up little idols based on the created versus the creator? It's interesting. When we think about that, the one who created everything deserves all of our praise. And nothing that has, is the created deserves that praise that God deserves. And so we see the condition of evil is idolatry. It's a robbing of God's glory. It's idolatry. It's putting self first. It's putting ourselves on the throne and taking God off the throne. This, of course, is the condition of evil. The Bible's very clear about this. Paul lays this out. But then there is, of course, the third aspect of evil, the consequences. Look at verse 24 and following. Therefore, notice the therefore. The therefore is there to make sure that we understand. Now that we know what the cause of evil is, pride, and we understand what the condition of evil is, is idolatry, now we come to the place where the rubber meets the road, the consequences of our evil. Therefore, God gave them over. You'll hear those three words three times in this passage that I'm about to read. God gave them over. In the sinful desires of their hearts, degraded hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged what? The truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So our hearts then become degraded, devalued, 
They focus on all the wrong things. They focus on the physical and not on the spiritual. They focus on the here and now and not on the future. They focus on what we want and not what God wants. They focus on our will and not God's will. Degraded hearts. And then in verse 26 it says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Again, he gave them over. God is a gentleman. He will not force himself on you. God will allow you the freedom to choose. And when you sin, and when you give in to that sin, and when you walk down that road with sin long enough, God will give you up to what you really desire. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. What Paul is addressing here in the New Testament is that lesbianism and homosexuality is a sin. It's a sinful lifestyle. It is not the design of God, it is not natural, it is not his plan, and it is not his will. But when we learn in our culture today that as long as two people love one another, it's okay. I was born this way. This is just who I am. You have to accept me for who I am. I know this is a sensitive subject. But in the church of Jesus Christ, we have to preach the word, and the word here says that those two Lifestyles are sin. Doesn't mean we don't love them. Doesn't mean that we don't demonstrate mercy and love and respect for them and grace, welcome them. But we have to call it what it is. It is sin. And so it's not just a a degraded heart, but it's a debased body. Your body is now being used for something God did not intend it to be used for. It's a debased body. Do you know what it really does? Is it devalues your body. And therefore, we have to stand up. The church has to stand up and say, no, this is not right. This is not God's design. But you understand, people who do not believe in God are playing from a different playbook. They They don't acknowledge this. Yes, you know, homosexuality is absolutely a sin. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus, it's a sin right here in Romans 1. It's a sin in Corinthians. It's a sin in Timothy. It's a sin. But if somebody doesn't subscribe to the word of God, then yes, their their lifestyle is their lifestyle. They choose to live however they want. The only difference is, is that when we love somebody and they come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, our job is to love them to a place where they are living the way God intends for them to live. Now, we can all sit here and we can agree to that, that this is kind of what God's design is. But let me keep reading, because you may be feeling comfortable right now. And now Paul's getting ready to unleash all of the other sin conditions. And I want to challenge all of us this morning, myself included, How do we stack up? Let's continue reading. Verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Once again, there's that knowledge of God. We know him. We know he exists. But we choose not to retain that knowledge. 
he gave them over. Do you see that? He gave them over. Third time he has said that to what? A depraved mind. A depraved mind. We have a degraded heart, a debased body, and now a depraved mind. To do what ought not to be done. To do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And then he starts to list them. They are full of envy. Have you ever been envious of someone's belongings or their status in life or their job or their possessions? Murder. Many of us will sit in this room and we'll say, well, I've never murdered anybody. But how did Jesus redefine murder? If you look with hatred in your heart towards your brother, you have committed murder in your heart. We're guilty. Strife. How many of us have been discordant? How many of us have broken people apart, created discord between people, created strife? How many of us have lied? How many of you kids have lied to your parents? Deceit and malice. You lie to your mom and dad. They say, go clean your room. Okay, I will. And then it doesn't get cleaned. We'll address that in a minute. There are gossips. Oh, pastor, you're stepping on my toes now. The church is known for gossiping. What is gossip? A lot of people say gossip and then it just comes out and we just go, oh yeah, no, that's not good. We know that's not good. It's in the Bible. It's not good. Well, let me define it for you. If you're going to stand there and talk about Randy and you're going to say, Randy's a pretty good pickleball player. And by the way, I'm getting pretty good, okay? (laughs) That's not gossip. If I'm not there, you're, you're giving me a compliment. You're lifting me up. You're edifying me. But if you stand there and you say, well, that Randy, you know, I don't know about him, you know, and you just go on and start talking about me when I'm not there, that's gossip. Does that make sense? If somebody's talking about you to somebody else, there's a good chance they're talking about you to somebody else. Does that make sense? That's gossip. God calls that sin. That is sin. Slanderers. Do you say things about people that are not true? God-haters, insolent, are you rude, arrogant, and boastful? How many of us are prideful? We're arrogant. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We put ourselves above other people. And then he says they invent ways of doing evil. You invent ways of doing evil. I invent ways of doing evil. It's the way that the nature of sin is. I told you I'd get back to it, kids. They disobey their parents. You know, the Bible says that you are to honor your mother and father. How many of you kids have disobeyed your parents? Go clean up your room. Oh, I'll get to it. That's disobedience. That's sin. And then he goes on and he throws out a litany of characterizations. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. Wow. Paul has just laid out perhaps one of the most condemning 
indictments of humankind. And we all sit here today and we know, we know in our heart of hearts what he is speaking is truth. So now we have to ask the question, then why does evil exist if it's so bad? We've just seen how ugly it is. The cause of it, the condition of it, the consequences are all ugly. We have to ask the question, is God responsible for it? I'm going to tell you emphatically no. Job 34.10 says, far be it for God to do evil. Habakkuk 1.13 declares, your eyes, God, are too pure to look on evil. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. You know, James lays it out. Yes, temptation comes to us, but it's not by God. He will test us. He will challenge us. He will give us difficulties to go through, to teach us. He may even discipline us. But God does not demonstrate evil in our lives. Rather, if you look through the pages of Scripture, if you did a word study on the word evil, and you looked at every time that evil occurred in the Word of God, guess what you would find? God's Word tells us to shun evil, to turn from evil, to hate evil, to reject evil, to flee from evil, and to resist evil. God's Word tells us to run from it, get away from it. It's not supposed to be a part of your life. Evil is a choice. Evil is a choice by humans. God doesn't ordain it. God doesn't decree it, as some theologians teach. No, God's Word says that He can't even look on evil because of His holiness. So you ask the question, well, wait a minute, Randy, didn't he send the flood to wipe out all of humanity? Did he not rain down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah? Did he not, in fact, bring the plagues against the Egyptians when Israel was in bondage? Did he not, in fact, command Joshua to destroy entire cities, men, women, and children in Jericho and Ai? Yes, yes he did. But listen, listen very carefully. There is a monumental difference between God's ordaining and decreeing evil and his righteous judgment on those who do evil. All of those events are God's judgment on those who do evil. And then we see the heart of God, don't we? We see the heart of God. In the flood, God showed his mercy. God showed his grace. God showed his love by saving Noah and his family. He saved a remnant. When he rained down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he do? He saved Lot and his daughters. Would have saved his wife, but she looked back and became a pillar of salt. When he took the Israelites out of Egypt and he brought them into the promised land and he told Joshua, wipe them all out because of the abominable sins of those nations leading up to and including child sacrifice, if you can believe it. It's very righteous for God to remove all of that evil abomination that was happening to children in Canaan. 
But what did he do? In his love and his forbearance, he saved Rahab and her family. God is a saving God. No, he did not create evil. He does not ordain evil, but he does allow it to exist. And now we come to the crux of the question. Why, oh God, why? We know evil exists. We know why it's caused. We know its condition. We know the consequences of it. We understand, God, that evil is real. Moral evil is real. We see it all around us. But why? Well, we get to it right here. First of all, God gives us freedom to choose. God did not create a world of robots. God, in his infinite wisdom, decided that the best of all worlds, the good world that he created, gave Adam and Eve a choice in the garden. He gave them a, 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 a forbidden tree, one forbidden tree. Any other tree of the garden, Adam and Eve, you may eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not eat. Or that the moment you eat of it, you will die. Well, what did they do? They ate of the tree. They disobeyed. But you see, a lot of people will say, well, wait a minute. Adam and Eve, yes, they had choice. But after the fall, there was no choice. Well, that's why I asked Shelley to read about Cain. Cain was outside of the garden. Cain was the oldest brother. Cain was the one who brought some of the fruit of his crops. Abel brought the fat firstborn of his flock to God. And God looked with favor on Abel's offering, but on Cain's offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain became angry. His face was downcast. And God approached him and he said, Cain, why are you so angry and why is your face downcast? And here's the key. God said, if you do right, if you do right, Cain, will you not be accepted? But if you do wrong, sin is crouching at your door. You see, Cain had a choice. He had the ability to choose to obey God, but he chose not to. You see, we have freedom to choose. You and I make choices every single day. We make choices where to eat, where to go, what to wear, what to buy, who to see. We make choices every single day. The greatest choice that we will ever make is whether or not we will receive the free gift that God has given us through his son, Jesus Christ, called eternal life. And because God created free creatures, evil exists because of their choices. Because of their choices. Not because he created it or ordained it. Now some would ask, why do bad things happen to good people? A rabbi in the early 70s wrote, or the early 80s, wrote a book called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And I told the staff this week, his, his premise is wrong. Why is his premise wrong? Show me a good person. There are no good people. We're all sinful. We've inherited the sin nature and then we make choices that are sinful. We're not good people. God is all powerful, but he gives us the freedom to choose and then the consequences thereof. But when people do ask me, hey Randy, why do bad things happen to good people? Or why do bad things happen in this world? You know what my answer is? 
Well, I don't know the answer to that question. What I do know is I'm going to ask you a question. Why does anything good happen? Because the ruler of this world is Satan. You see, why does anything good happen? The result of the fall is that we are fallen. All of creation, it says in Romans 8, is groaning. Groaning. Waiting for restoration. Every one of us understands the the consequences of the fallen nature. We grow old. We have disabilities. We are not able to remember. This This is called the decay and death of humanity. It happens to all of us. This is the fall that happened. And so the result of the fall is that we will, in fact, die. But God says, choose life. He tells Moses, Moses stands in front of the people of Israel and he says, I set before you blessing and curse, life and death. Choose life. Choose life. Joshua, at the end of his days, he said, what did he say? He said, you, this day, should choose whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Ezekiel, Ezekiel writing in the exile, when the people of Israel are in exile in Babylon, Ezekiel says, repent and live. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Repent and live. Jesus, when he first entered into his earthly ministry, the very first words he said were, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The word repent means turn from your wicked way and turn toward God and follow him fully. That's what this is all about. God wants to demonstrate his love for us by giving us freedom of choice. And when we have that choice, we have the choice to love God. Isn't it wonderful? God didn't create robots where you were forced or compelled to love him. No, we love him freely. Nobody dragged you here to this sanctuary this morning, did they? You chose to come here to worship who? Jesus Christ. Because he is love. And you've learned how to love and worship him because of that love. You see, God doesn't want to compel you to love him. He wants you to freely choose to love him. You kids out there, do you love your parents? Do you, want, do, you, do you want your parents to force you to love them? To force you to do a handwritten card for them when it's their birthday? To make you stand over there and do the card? Or make you come over there and give, you, give them a hug? No. They would drop out of their chair if you came downstairs and said, Mom and Dad, I love you because that is a free sincere love you see that's what God wants is love he wants us to love him and thirdly we would never see God's mercy we would never see God's glory we would never witness the righteousness of God or the justice of God carried out if there were no evil there's no evil, then there's no reason for God to show mercy or love or grace. And think about it. God wants to reveal his entire character to us, all that he is. And he does so because of evil in this world. And then, of course, all of his character is on display 
but there is God's patience as well. You realize, if you and I really had our choice this morning, I'm sure many of us would agree. You know what? I think it would be better if God just took away all evil in this world. That sounds really like a wonderful idea. But according to the pages of Scripture, you are a source of evil. I'm a source of evil. Which means if God dispelled with all evil, he would have to dispel with all of humankind. None of us would be sitting here this morning. So God is forbearing. He is patient. He is kind. Many of us know the, the promise of God in 2 Peter 3, 9. God is patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but everyone come to repentance. You see, God is waiting. He is waiting for you and me to reach all who will come to him. It's our job. It's the Great Commission. All of us are aiming to go and identify every single person who will come to Jesus Christ. He is patient. But you know, here's the real crux of the question of evil, and it's God's promise. You know, when I talked about the problem of evil, the logical syllogism that I said, if God is all-powerful and God is all-loving, then why does he allow evil? The premise of that question is flawed, you see. Whenever you sit down and talk to a smart person and they utter a premise to you, you've got to ask yourself the question, does that premise hold water? And the premise is flawed because it implies that God's not ever going to do anything with evil. But he is. And the Bible says he is. God's promise is, is that he will put an end to evil once and for all. He limits it now. He limits evil now. In fact, there's a very interesting passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You could go home and read it. It talks about this restraining force that is keeping the evil one from running rampant. What is that restraining force? What is it in this world that is keeping evil from having its full weight and power? Good news. It is the Holy Spirit living in and through every single one of us. That is what's holding us in a place where evil does not run rampant. So God's promise. So we see the freedom. We see the love. We see God's attributes in display. We see God's patience. And we see God's promise. But now we must turn and answer the question about suffering. <laughs> suffering. Why? Because now here's in a more emotional aspect of the question, why does God allow evil and suffering? Suffering is the state of pain, distress, or hardship. And I mentioned many of them to us earlier. Natural disasters, diseases. None of us three years, knew, three years ago knew anything about COVID. And yet it's an epidemic that has swept the world. Diseases come. Death comes to us. There are physical, mental, and intellectual disabilities that all of us have. We experience injuries. Have you ever tripped or fallen or slipped? Had a product malfunction in your hands? All of us experience suffering. 
We, look need no, we need look no further than the life of Job to see what suffering really is all about. In the Old Testament, the book of Job, Satan approaches God and says, this righteous man of yours, of course he's going to give you praise because you've blessed him. And God says, Satan, you may do whatever you want to that man, but do not lay a finger on him. Do you understand the difference between God's sovereignty and Satan's created being's limitations? Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Let's be clear. And of course, we see the, the story as it reads out. Interestingly, when I was in ninth grade, my English teacher gave us the book of Job to read as a literary piece. It's that, it's that assignment that brought me into a relationship with God. It was the first seed that was planted in my life. And it's interesting because Job lost all ten of his children seven sons and three daughters. He lost his entire herd and flocks were wiped out. And then later, he develops boils all over his skin. Boils that became so painful to him that he would take chards of pottery and poke the blisters to gain some relief. And his three fun friends and one other start telling him how evil he must be. I'll never forget what Job said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord has not promised us a rose garden. You kids who get trophies every time you show up, that's not life. Okay? You're not going to get a trophy every time you show up. Life is hard. You're either coming out of a crisis, or you're in the middle of a crisis, or you're coming out of a crisis. It's going to happen. All of us are susceptible to the fallenness of this creation. But then we have hope, because suffering really does hit at the heart of who we are as humans. But we have hope. Turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. I mean, chapter 5. And let me begin reading in verse 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us us. Suffering builds perseverance. Suffering builds character. Suffering gives us hope, you see. <laughs> I want us to walk through the seven R's of why we suffer. The first is up on your screen. It's recognition. Suffering helps us to recognize how fallen our world really is. When you suffer, when you see others suffer, you recognize that we do live in a world that is fallen. Repentance. Repentance. It compels us to repent for our sin and our rebellion against God, our disobedience. When we suffer, it's a form of discipline. It's a form of 
helping us to turn back to the one who can help us in our time of need. Number three, reliance. Reliance. It draws us to depend more on him, to rely on God. If you never suffered, you would never reach out to God. You would never cry out to God. When Damar Hamlin collapsed on that field, the whole world took a deep breath. <gasps> what just happened? And then we saw players kneeling as if by impulse to pray. They prayed for that man. Millions who are watching the game on television paused to pray. The announcers in the booth didn't know what to say, kept passing it back to the people in the studio, and they kept passing it back to the people on the field. And then one ESPN reporter, Dan Orlovsky, during one of the ESPN shows, says, I'm going to say a prayer right here and right now. A secular television station has one of its on-screen talents saying a prayer. God will use suffering to draw us to himself. And then fourthly, revelation. Revelation. In our suffering, God makes himself known to us. I can guarantee you, I'd walk through this room and I would ask every one of you, in your times of the most deep suffering in your life, did you feel the presence of God that much more tangibly? I guarantee you, every one of you would say yes. That is why the psalmist would say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You see, God uses suffering to make himself known to us. And then fifthly, the redemption. There's redemption. All of us who are in Christ have been redeemed and it authenticates our faith and our salvation. It is a way for us to remember that we are in him. And because we are in him and we are his child, he will take care of us. And even if we die, that is not the end for us. Our redemption is so powerful. Number six is representation. We are Christ's representatives on this earth. And suffering makes us more like our Savior. The Apostle Paul would say, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Do you want to know Christ that well, that you will suffer? Peter would say this, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, then you shall follow in his steps representation. You are a representative of Christ in this world. Every person you come into contact with, they should know that you are Jesus's brother or sister. And then lastly, relatability. You realize if you've never suffered, you'll never be of any help to somebody who's going through suffering. The fact is that many of us are suffering today, and we can relate in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, And the God of all comfort will comfort you with the comfort that comes only from him. But then you can take that comfort and comfort others. This is what the church is all about. This is why we gather. This is why we are a fellowship. 
Because at one point in our lives, we're going to go through suffering. And somebody else in this congregation can minister to you because they've been there. They've done that. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why does this happen to me? You know, we, Susan and I had the, the joy of having Seth, a son with severe special needs. And when I was teaching Sunday school class, people would say, oh, Randy, you're blessed. You're blessed. I mean, you talk about faith. Oh, that's all wonderful. You can say you've got faith until we had Seth. And then all of a sudden they said, wait a minute, you're still faithful. And this is why. Because God gives you what you don't necessarily know how to give yourself. He gives you the ability to sustain through, to persevere, and then to see it through his eyes. And friends, I can tell you right now, that child has changed my life no other, like no other life could. It has made our family so much closer. And it has caused our family to be on our knees. Oh, Lord, not why me, but now, oh, Lord, why me? Why did you choose us? We're so, we don't feel worthy that you chose us to be that child's parents. You understand, that's how God changes us. And you're going to go through something and you can be there for that person. My prayer today is that you will be there. Suffering is a great teacher, it is a great friend, and it is a great discipliner. It will help us become more like Jesus. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't end this message today. I know I've gone long. There is not a person who has ever walked the face of this planet who has endured more evil and suffering than Jesus Christ. Amen. He has endured more evil and suffering than the world has ever known. And he hung on that cross. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Job, <laughs> I like to quote Job, In the final conclusion, Job would say, I know that my Redeemer lives. Amen. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him. I, and not any other, how my heart yearns within me. What a declaration of faith. So we see suffering has many benefits, even though the pain is real. It's real. We live on this side of heaven. It's real. Evil is real. But there are benefits to God allowing evil. Not the least of which is to keep us around until we finally come to our senses, like the prodigal son. But there is coming a day. There is coming a day, the Bible says, it's in the last chapter. You know, have you ever looked at the end of the book? You know, it's important to look at the end of the book. You see, when you look at the end of the book, 
you declare, we win. We win. We're going through all this suffering. We're having to persevere. We're having to go through the pain, the toil, the sweat, all that the world brings. But guess what? We win. God himself will say these words in Revelation 21, verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. May God be forever praised. Let us pray. Father, my prayer today is that your holy word has instructed our hearts as to your character of love, mercy, grace, righteousness, justice, and yes, even wrath. That, Father, you and your character were exalted this morning as we studied the pages of Scripture in answer to these two great questions. Why do you allow evil and why do you allow suffering? My prayer is that as a church family we'll walk out these doors with these reminders at the forefront of our minds as we go and we share the love of Jesus Christ with those around us, knowing that when that question comes, we will have an answer. Lord, I pray that every one of us in this room will recommit our life to you. Lord, if there are any in this room who have never taken the step of faith to trust Jesus Christ today, today is their opportunity to do so. I pray that you will move in their hearts to respond and come forward as we're singing this song. Father, if there are people in this room who want to join this body of believers, they've been visiting for a while and now they finally are ready to join this local body to worship and serve you in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray that they move this morning and come forward and speak with me. Father, if there's anybody in this room today who really needs to get right with you and just say, Lord, I'm a believer, but I've been playing at it. And 2023 is a new year. 2023 is my year that I am going to draw near to you because your word teaches that when we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. So, Father, we, we commit this to you. May they respond today as well. There's an altar up front. I'm here. They can pray in their pew wherever they feel comfortable coming to you and making it right and recommitting their life to you. So, Father, as we sing this song, may we respond with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength to the praise and glory of you and your Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.